this annual party that you have, will we be opening this up to a larger audience? Do I need to get a concert promoter, maybe get you a venue and sound like, <laughs> you know, what did you call it? Fried Chicken and Revolution? Fried Chicken we and Revolution. You know, fried Chicken and Revolution. I know. Now I'm going to have to trademark it, copyright it, whatever. The Message. Spotlighting the most important voices of today with Ebro. An open dialogue about their experiences in these times and the music that inspires them. Welcome back to The Message. I'm your host, Ebro Darden, and today is Juneteenth, the day in America where we celebrate black people's emancipation from slavery. So it's time for a little history lesson. You may recall back in 2021, journalist and educator Nicole Hannah-Jones pulled up on the program to talk about her incredible work developing the 1619 Project for the New York Times, how that project intersects with critical race theory, her message that education is liberation. So sit back, get your lesson, this is the message. Ladies and gentlemen, what's going on? It's Apple Music, and we have another episode of a segment we do called The Message. Today's guest, the great, dare I say legend, the, 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 buff, the buffet table shaker, the, the, you know, the catalyst of all things you know, black in the world right now in, in people's mental state and the lexicon of conversation. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, how are you today? I am good. I'm happy to be here and, and talk about music. I'm excited. Exactly. Well, that's where our focus is today, too, because, you know, I know you um, outside of, you know, everything see, people see about you on the news. Um, and I know that you have amazing parties that I've been invited to and I, I I didn't make it to the last one but I missed I saw the photos and it was great I know that you're a lover of music uh I know that you're a lover of life uh you know mother and just an amazing human being that cares about uh uplifting people and sharing and gathering and these things and so I wanted to have you on the message um because I wanted to delve into music with you um because you you have a vast knowledge of music and uh, I, I would just, before we get started, um, if you had a message of everything going on in your world right now, right? If you had a message for people who are following you, listening to you, reading, reading your works, what would that message be? My message would be that uh, education is liberation. And there's mm. a reason that so many people are fighting so hard to keep our children ignorant of the truth about uh, this nation and its past, because once you know, uh, you become empowered. And once people are empowered, they won't accept the conditions in which we live. And so uh, I think education is the most revolutionary thing we have. And um, we should all seek to get our lesson. Do you remember music um helping shape or directing you in the in any way with regard to learning information Absolutely. I mean, I grew up definitely in a music household. You talked about me throwing parties. Well, I throw house parties because my dad and mom threw house parties and they threw house parties with vinyl. And actually, if you if I turn my camera just a little bit, you can see just a corner of my oh, dad's yeah, vinyl collection. You got a stack, got a stack uh -huh, over on there. My, on my shelf. I have a record player of my dad's vinyl collection. Um, and these were like, you know, I, I come from working class folks in Waterloo, Iowa, people who worked in beef packing plants, that sort of thing. And the weekend was when, to me, uh, you came and got your freedom. Like you you, you cleaned up, you, you wiped all that 
blood from the animals off your hands and, you know, put some lotion on that ash and and pulled out the albums and just partied all night. And and I just remember, you know, the smell of frying fish and um, my dad pulling out. I grew up on a lot of like 70s funk music. I knew all the words and loved that music. So music was always... Um, I mean, I, I almost hear like a soundtrack when I think about my childhood and I, whenever I cleaned, whenever I did homework, whenever I did anything, I always had music going and I still do to this day. Well, since you brought up funk, we, you know, um, I mean, there is no funk without James Brown. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was, that was where it started to really, the music was uh, transitioning from, you know, soul and R&B and blues and gospel and 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 James and Jazz and James Brown was that, you know, he brought in that other era, that next era when we, you know, that's when we met Bootsy Collins and when we <laughs> met, you know, and that became, you know, so much more music there. But so you got Payback on your playlist. You got Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud on your playlist. Um, oh, you got Sam Cooke on here, Temptations and Rick James uh, on here. So where should we go next? Uh, I would actually think, well... We should start with Isaac Hayes. Okay. Hyperbolic. And the song, uh, Psychedelic Mystic. That, yes. It's got 35 uh, letters in the name of the song, and the song is about that long. But when you, when you listen to this, like it just it takes you to a certain era. It's a musical masterpiece. We're talking to uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. So Waterloo, Iowa, uh, working class family, um, Talk to us about Waterloo, Iowa. I don't know, you know, uh, you're the only person I know from there. Um, <laughs> and so um, tell me about the black folks, because this is a large population of black folks moved to Iowa during the Great Migration, right? And looking yes. for work, working in the plants and, and started families in this area. But I would love to hear your experience and, and, and your information about Waterloo, Iowa and what shaped the story you were telling us about, you know, weekends at your family's house. Yeah, absolutely. So um, shout out to the small Midwestern towns that we never hear about. Everybody didn't make it to Chicago or Detroit or Milwaukee. There are a lot of little towns between the South and the Midwest, uh, little Rust Belt towns that Black folks settled in. So my family came up on the same migration that brought Black folks from Mississippi to Chicago. If you know the story of the migration, the migration followed the train lines. And the train line from Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, was the Illinois Center. And so when my father was about three years old, my grandmother loaded him up and his two younger siblings. They got on the Illinois Central with a box of cold fried chicken that uh, her mother had fried for her. Um, they were sharecroppers in Greenwood. And my father was actually born on a white plantation um, and they, they grew cotton. And my grandmother decided her kids were not going to grow cotton. And she got on that train and she landed in Waterloo. Uh, I always say that uh, we were so country, our family, that we saw Waterloo and thought we hit the big city and got off the train too early. That's probably not true, but that's that's what I feel. Um, and Black, we didn't make it. If we would have stayed a little bit longer, we would have made it to Chicago like uh, the rest of the folks from Mississippi. But Waterloo was, um, first Black people came as strike breakers when they were building the Illinois Central Rail Line and the white workers went on strike. They brought Black folks up from the South to break the strike. And so Black people began to settle there first as railroad workers. And then during the migration, 
to work in wrath packing meat packing plant uh, and the John Deere plant that's there where you could make a it was a hard work but you could make a decent living uh, with a union job without having to have a great deal of education. And of course, because this was an agrarian migration, a migration of sharecroppers, most of the folks who came up uh, did not have an education, but they did have a desire to change their lives. So Waterloo has, uh, it's about 15% Black, which is Blacker than a country. Our country is a little more than 13% Black. And most people don't think about Iowa and Black folks. Uh, that's because it's a very white state. Um, but we were a very working class town. It's a blue collar union town with a sizable black population. And I grew up um, on the black side of town, which is the east side. Uh, but I began being bused as part of a school segregation uh, program starting the second grade to the 12th grade. So every you know, racial issue that you see in any other urbanized uh, place in America, we had in Waterloo just on a smaller scale. Now, did that experience of understanding what your grandmother had to, you know, sacrifice and making sure that her children had a different life than than she had, um, and also watching your father do that hard work, um, how did that shape, um, you know, your, you going into journalism and what we've now learned uh, from you with the 1619 Project and everything that you're, you know, kind of been thrust into this mainstream kind of you know, light and political light, is that experience what shaped what we see today? Or did something else, you know, happen that that pushed you in this path? Yeah, growing up in Waterloo uh, definitely shaped the the uh, my desire to become a journalist, my interest in uh, racial inequality, and really my personality, which is why I pop off all the time. Um, so I have Waterloo on my wrist. Um, I, I I, I think I, I clearly wouldn't be the person I am today without growing up there. And like you, Ebro, I also grew up in a biracial household. So right. my mother is white, my father is black. And I think uh, growing up in a black community, but part of a biracial family, uh, it gave, and being bused into white schools, it just showed me that all of the reasons we were told on the media about why black people struggled weren't true because I could see there were working class white folks on my white side, there were working class black folks on my black side, but the working class white folks on my white side lived a very different life uh, than the people yep. who worked just as hard on my black side, right? They, um, you know, any school they could afford to go to, any neighborhood they could afford to live in was open to them. That wasn't true for um, the black side of my family. And because of that, uh, I had questions about why. Well, I know that uh, the black side of my family works just as hard, but why aren't they able to get home loans to fix up their house or purchase a home? Mm. Why, why are they not able to advance in their jobs? Uh, I started having a lot of questions and then being bused into wealthy white schools um, being one of the only black kids, one of the only working class kids, it just led me to really question uh, narratives. And um, so I, that kind of inquisitiveness, that that skepticism, I think was developed at a really early age because I just was seeing that what we were being told wasn't true. And I could see it. I didn't, I didn't have to study it. I could see it in the two different branches I, of my own family. Right. Exactly. Um, but my father, I think like your father, uh, sat my sisters and I down at a really young age and was like, your mom is white you're, and I'm black, but you're black. Like, right. <laughs> there's not going to be a straddle of the line here because this is how <laughs> the country is going to treat you. This is who right. you are. And uh, I really believed in and embraced that. So I, in high school... 
was bused to a white high school and saw a lot of the racial tensions at the school. And I started complaining to one of my, uh, the only black male teacher I had, uh, Mr. Ray Dow, that our high school paper didn't ever write about kids like me, like the, all the black kids who were bused in into a school that wasn't ours and we felt we didn't belong to. And, you know, as a great black educator will do, he kept it real with me. And he said, well, either join the paper and write those stories yourself or shut up and don't come in here and complain to me about mm. it anymore. So Talk that's what I did. It. I joined my high school paper um, and uh, started writing about the black kids who were bust and started writing about race. And that's when I really started to think about maybe this is a career I want to pursue. Amazing. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to pause right there. I think we got to get into some records um, okay. because, I mean, that story is phenomenal. Um, I feel like we should get into uh, some James Brown, The Big Payback, because, yeah. you know, I feel... <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel like that, you know, um, for the next part of this conversation uh, really shapes because, you know, uh, you now sit in a position not only uh, because of what you've written, uh, but because of the life you've lived and because of the personality that you ha that you are, uh, that you can now, you know, um, say things that we wish our ancestors could have said and, <laughs> and, and, and bring attention to. Uh, stories and uh, and truths that I think uh, our ancestors wish people would have paid attention to. And I think that's kind of uh, the blessing of whom you are. Uh, I know it's a big burden that's on your shoulders, and I'm sure you're stressed out. But we love you. <laughs> you're protected. Uh, and, and, and you know, uh, we see... I mean, everybody celebrates you in my space. So I, I hopefully that's the, the energy you get most of the time is love and admiration. So... A record like The Big Payback, right? Um, you know, I mean, there's so many things that James is speaking to in that record as a black man, right? Uh, about uh, the abuse of black women, uh, losing your woman uh, to uh, the white man or to the system, as it were. Yeah. Um, and, and just feeling this desire to fight, be able to fight back or at, the, at a time we will be able to fight back and we're going to get our comeuppance and we're going to... You know, and uh, I think we're we're living in on the precipice of an important time where there is a social awakening to the the truths about American society and about yes. white supremacy at large. Um, do you also see that? Um, and 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 where do you see um, with all of the uh, I guess divisiveness and the polarization polarization around something like the sixteen nineteen project? When you look out into the into the future, your future being becoming a, a tenured professor at Howard, and you know the the work you're going to be doing, um, do you think we're at an important crossroads in history right this second? Yes, yeah, so that that was a lot in that question, and let me let me first say that. Um, I knew that my mom and dad were having an argument if this song came on. <laughs> this was like <laughs> me and my sisters, my dad, when my dad would get mad at my mom, he would, he would turn the, you know, it was, it was back when the record player was like this tall, the speakers were that tall, that big stack unit. And me and my sisters would be like, okay, let's not go downstairs because mom and dad are, are down there arguing. So that's kind of my earliest memories of this song. The song came out, I'm, I'm uh, like a year younger than you, a couple years before I was born, but, mm -hmm. um, 
I always think about that. And I do think about, you know, he's talking about he wants his revenge. He wants his payback. Right. And he is talking about a whole range of things. And of course, James Brown, uh, in some ways, kind of epitomizes using music for black empowerment. And I, I was when I was thinking about this list, I was also thinking about studying the album covers back then and how right. completely like pro-black the album covers were. And I was a kid and I would just be like surrounded by the albums on the floor and like studying all of the arts and the arts was kind of psychedelic and, and, and you know, you would unfold it and it's telling this story and then you're matching that up with the music, but I'm living in the 80s and the 90s and we're seeing a very different America uh, than what they were talking about in the 70s, which is right after the civil rights movement, right when you have the Black Panthers. Um, so I'm growing up with like these very disjointed images in my head um, and being influenced by a lot of different music. And as you know, the Big Payback is also one of the most sampled, <laughs> right, uh, yep. tracks probably in in American hip hop and R&B, not just, not just hip hop. Um, so I think that we are... Definitely, um, I think, kind of in the midst of a Black renaissance. And when we look across culture and the, the kind of level that we're seeing Black writers, Black creatives, Black filmmakers, Black artists, um, something we haven't seen really in, in some decades. And because of that, we're also seeing a tremendous pushback from a majority population that is used to seeing itself at the center of the narrative, itself as driving the narrative. And it's okay if we're only uh, kind of uh, standing out, I think, in the artistic space. What's less okay is us standing out in the political space, in the space where we're driving the actual narratives about our country. And that's where a lot of this backlash is coming from. You know, when you said um, in the beginning part of your question that I'm able to say things that our ancestors wish they could have said. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I go back and I read Ida B. Wells, who, of course, True. my Twitter handle pays uh, homage to. I read Frederick Douglass, and I'm like, I can't believe a man, like, when slavery was right, still happening, true. was writing right, and true. saying the things that that he said. Um I look at, you know, if you read James Baldwin or W.E.B. Du Bois, you're like, why am I even writing? Because they've already written right, better right, right, anything right. I could possibly write. But what we know is they you largely were not writing for mainstream publications. They were not getting the platform uh, in the same way that, that we now have the platform to drive. And we also know they received tremendous pushback uh, for the right. work that they were trying to do. So I feel... Um, really blessed to try to uh, continue within that legacy and understanding that, um, you know, a few years ago, Ida B. Wells was still being treated as an obscure figure. And uh, I've tried to help bring her name back into kind of the, the American lexicon. But I think all of us are just blessed to have the type of platform uh, that we have to do the work that our ancestors uh, were doing, but, but doing uh, it in a much more hostile environment than what we're facing. And not getting, and as you pointed out, not getting, and I think that's what I was trying to articulate, not getting the mainstream coverage. That's right. Not getting, not Absolutely. being a part of the mainstream conversation. Um, and so that, now that this conversation around the 1619 Project and critical race theory is a mainstream conversation, um, you can bring, you can say those things to people in many walks of life and they have an opinion or they've, yeah. or they've at least heard of it in some regard. Um, and yes, there is major pushback. And, and as you pointed out, the, the power structure is being 
made very uncomfortable because their their power and their influence is now in question, right? Um, by too many individuals. Um, do you see uh, your role in in pushing this forward heightening? Is that what you want um, to to do more to be more mainstream, um, or is 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 it mostly as? And I think I've heard you say this. Uh, I think you were talking to Gail King about about going to Howard. Um, you were very purposeful about this is my calling to make sure that HBCUs and the black student body and anybody who's paying attention, I'm reinforcing that. Yeah, I think I think that it's both. So I one, let me just say, I never expected that anybody would ever know my name. Uh, I didn't come <laughs> become a journalist because I was looking to become well known or right. you know back back. When I became a journalist, there was no such thing as a platform. People didn't talk, right? Social media didn't even exist. Uh, I just wanted to write about Black folks and, and race, and I wanted to do it for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and, and, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution never even hired me, but, you know, it worked out okay. Um, so I have, because of that, because my desire was never to be known, but to do work in service of our people, um, I have a very clear sense of of mission for my work and that drives everything that I do. I don't have to make certain compromises uh, because I'm trying to do things to be known. Uh, I'm really just trying to do the work that I'm called to do. And I think I have a dual purpose. Um, I think there's a difference between who is your work for and who is your work to. And those are not, sometimes those are the same thing and sometimes they are. Like my work is for Black people. But my work often is to people who are not Black, who have no understanding of why our country functions the way it does, uh, why do Black Americans still experience so much disadvantage and inequality. And I'm trying to explain our country to people, but I'm trying to explain it in service of and for Black Americans. So I think I have to always do both things. Going to Howard was a very particular uh, decision to say, I'm in a position now. I, I've risen up through uh, all of these elite white institutions. And that's given me a certain position and access to resources that I can now use and bring back uh, to help build up black institutions. And that's very important to me. But for my larger work um, of what I'm trying to do with my journalism, I still want and desire to be at a platform like the New York Times because of the power uh, that that platform brings and the ability to really shape um, policy and the way that we think and understand, think about and understand our society. So I think many of us uh, have a foot in both worlds and are serving multiple purposes with our work, which is what I'm trying to do. Uh, with that, I want to get into uh, this Method Man and Mary J. Blige. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because... Uh, um, it's definitely about love and, you know, and, and definitely having people have your back, you know, uh, and, and somebody to have your back. And once again, I just, you know, I, I see, look, I follow you on social media uh, for the audience, just so y'all know, when the 1619 Project came out, it, had, it was nowhere near, I don't believe, a part of the mainstream dialogue where it is today. But I remember when I first saw it, I reached out to you. I started following you on Twitter, and I had my and I was like, "Yo, you gotta come to the show." And then I begged Nicole to give me mass amounts of copies <laughs> of the sixteen nineteen project so that me and my team could drive around the city and hand it out to kids all around New York City. Uh, this was before the pandemic, so um, I, I've been a fan. I've been a fan, and, and we appreciate you so much. You're listening to the message. My convo with my friend Nicole Hannah Jones. 
Don't forget that in addition to this convo, she made a 30-song playlist that you can listen to right now on Apple Music. Kendrick Lamar, Mary J, Outkast, Lauren Hill, Rihanna, SZA, others all on that playlist. Go check it out. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app. Back to my convo with Nicole Hannah-Jones on The Message. So uh, let's go to your house parties. I've also seen you put on the gram, you know, it looks like you could burn something in the kitchen. (laughs) Looks like you get down in the kitchen too. So um, when when you come to a Nicole Hannah-Jones house party, which might have to be a thing, by the way, you know what I mean? It might might have to sell tickets. We might have to take this to a bigger stage. You know, it might have to really turn in. You know, we might have to rent out a building, get a sound system, hey. and and turn it into something. And you're going to have to host. You know, it's going to be invite only. <laughs> so, well, you know, we don't need no crazies in there. But what's on the table? Walk us through the house party vibes. We walk into the house. What's going on in there? Absolutely. So, you know, you know, I love to throw parties. Again, it's in my DNA. But once I moved to New York... Um, I started moving around in these circles of writers and I mentor a lot of young journalists. And I just was thinking like all these young journalists, um, it would be great if they could get access to their heroes, right? It would be great if they could get access to the writers whom they admire, but they're not going to have a chance to meet because I I think a lot about how I felt when I was trying to make it and how you didn't, you know, I didn't grow up being taught how to network. I, I didn't grow up with any of that. And so I didn't know how, how do you, how do you meet someone who's writing you admire and who's your hero? And, um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a student of the Harlem Renaissance and I always love the idea of these salons they used to have in the Harlem Renaissance. And I, people might, don't hate me for saying this, but I think, you know, Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy is the heart of the current renaissance. Um, so uh, I decided I was going to start throwing these writer salons uh, at my house and a place just where a bunch of like dope black creatives of all different ranges in their career, folks who are still in school, folks who are well-established could just come together and uh, do readings, talk about writing, talk about politics eat great food, and then, you know, at the end of the night, drink a lot of great uh, bourbon and listen to amazing music and and dance. Um, so I, I started the first one probably almost 10 years ago. Um, and they just have, have grown and grown. And I call them, usually Fried Chicken and Revolution is the name. <laughs> and we... Uh, <laughs> I, we have two turkey fryers in the back. We we fry chicken all night. Uh, we make collard greens. It's a, it's a it's a standard kind of uh, soul food, very simplified. Um, collard greens, fried chicken, potato salad, mac and cheese, and then I make pound cake because I ma- I make the best seven up cake in America. And that's what we do. We just you you. It's not, you know, they're not open, but they're not exclusive either. I always tell young people, bring somebody with you. Um, and we just get together and we vibe. And to me, it's, it's one of those things where when you do this type of work, it is very taxing. Spiritually is very taxing. Mentally is very taxing. And to just have a safe space with a bunch of folks of like mind who are trying to also uh, use their work to make this world a better place where you can just, uh, just be real black. And real chill. And, you know, we might start off uh, with readers, but by the end of the night, we're playing two chains and it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we got to put on the electric slide, the mandatory electric slide <laughs> joint right here that before I let go, you know what I mean? Throwing that Frankie Beverly and Mays real quick because I know, you know, that gets the party started. Listen, before I let go, I know we got, look, at the NFL games, they're going to be singing the Black National Anthem, lift every voice and sing. <laughs> 
But the other black national anthem, I think is Frankie Beverly and Mays before I let go. Absolutely. You First of all, you cannot not feel good when that song comes on. You might be arguing, you might be mad, you might be tired, but when that song comes on, all of a sudden your whole mood changes. And it's just not a black party if that's not played at least one time during the night. And I also, if you see on my list, I I included the old version and I also love the Beyonce Beyonce version, uh, which I play all the time as well. It just makes you... It makes you feel good. It is the Black National Anthem, right? The the, the partying Black National Anthem. Um, it, it's, it like spans all generations and it just yeah, puts yeah. you in, in a certain place. And one thing that, that we need is we've got to take time for joy. Um, I used to think this idea of self-care was frivolous. People would ask mm-hmm. me uh, all the time when I gave talks, well, what, what's your self-care regimen? And I was like, bourbon, which is not actually a self-care <laughs> regimen. Um, and it seemed really frivolous considering what our ancestors have been through for like someone in a privileged position like myself to be, what was me? I need self-care. Uh, but another really good writer friend of mine told me, you know, he's like, Nicole, if, if you don't take care of yourself, you won't actually be here to do the work and you will have deprived your people of the work that you're trying to do for them. And that really clicked for me in a way that just feeling like, Oh God, life is hard. I need to, I need to, you know, engage in self-care. Um, because self-care actually is uh, in service of your people because right. it allows you to be here, be healthy, and do the work. And we've lost so many of our our great writers and our great fighters. They die too young. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, like, frankly, Beverly and Mays and, like, throwing these house parties, that is an act of self-care uh, because it's right. just a space where you could just be free for a while. All, the only emotions you feel are just joy. And we need to have that uh, desperately, especially in these times. Nicole Hannah-Jones is with us today. It's Apple Music. Um, you will, when do you begin? When do you go to Howard? How does your Howard tenure, for the, us laymen who don't even know what tenure is, <laughs> you know what I mean? What, what, I, I, we, I watched closely the, the issue with uh, what was going on in North Carolina. I love the conversation you, met, you had with Gail King on CBS this morning. And, um, but what exactly were you fighting for and why is it so important? tenure professor and when do you get to campus and kind of give us the lay of the land for that so i've been um so shocked by the fact that the tenure story even became a big story and like how many regular folks who shouldn't you know have no reason to care about whether a a professor gets tenure or not actually cared about this story i was at the uh, airport and one of the the black tsa agents was like girl you're gonna get that tenure gave me high five i was like wow i I had no idea like you know regular working people who are just trying to like get a paycheck would care but but what tenure is is um tenure is a a form of uh, protection for academic freedom that you find in academia and uh once you've reached a certain level in academia, you go through a process and tenure means that basically they can't fire you. And what happened with me at the University of North Carolina, the fact that I was denied tenure initially actually speaks to why tenure should exist. Because I was denied mm. tenure because conservatives don't like the nature of my work. They don't like the 1619 mm. project. And you can't really have... um the marketplace of ideals, ideas that you're supposed to have in academia, if people can be punished, if researchers, if academics, if thought leaders can be punished for 
doing work that is not popular or that certain people in power don't like. Uh, and I was denied that protection. And, and through the whole debacle, the crazy thing is, Ebro, like I, I wasn't even looking for this job. Um, I have a full-time job at the New York Times and I was right. recruited back to my alma mater over a series of years and finally agreed that I would go ahead and, and add one more thing to my plate and then to be denied tenure uh, after I was approved uh, by you know, a panel of my peers. Um, it just was really angering and clarifying. And I think the reason that so many people across the country uh, became interested in the story was it just proved that you can do, you know, as a Black person, as a member of a marginalized group, you can follow all their rules. You can get every award that they say you're supposed to get. You can do everything that they tell you you're supposed to do. And at the end, they'll just change the rules, right? They'll just flip the right. script and say, okay, all of these uh, credentials, all of these criteria that we set forth, even if you do all of that at the end, we'll say, oh, it still wasn't enough. And I think people just really responded to that because regular folks understand what that's like to do everything that you think you're supposed to do and still be treated unfairly in the end. Um, and that's when I decided that, you know, people like that, uh, who I've been facing down my entire career, were not ever going to have a say over my life again. And I wasn't going to be begging, um, this these elite white institutions to let me in anymore. I just I, I've done I was done proving myself, and I decided I wanted to go to Howard University, the mecca, instead for lots of reasons. Um, one being I wish I had gone to Howard when I was an undergrad. Uh, one of my few regrets is I didn't go to a historically black college as an undergrad. I, I think how differently my undergraduate experience would have been if I hadn't spent that entire experience in opposition to a school that didn't really think I belonged, where I always had to prove, you know, I was smart enough to be there. Um, and I just, um, I felt it was time to try to use my resources to even the playing field for these colleges that uh, punch above their weight, they're under-resourced, they don't get the type of resources that uh, similar schools do, but they're putting out more Black professionals than a lot of these white, um, uh, predominantly white colleges. So, um, and in doing so, I really wanted to send a message, uh, not just to the gatekeepers at these white institutions uh, that we don't, we don't need you all. Like we, you know, you're not going to be able to treat us anyway. And we just have to accept whatever crumbs you offer us, but also to like black folks and other marginalized folks that, um, don't let people take your power and your dignity. And, uh, sometimes you just have to walk away. And that's what I did. Um, do you, so do you begin teaching? Do you begin classes? I mean, like, I'm oh, sure yeah, I didn't students even, are I didn't like, even answer that question. I, did no, I? No, I, I, I mean, there's a lot there, but I'm sure students are like, yo, I'm going to how, like, you know, when I sign up, what class, what are we doing? Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be uh, teaching courses. So I'm going to be, I'll be a full professor there. I'm going to be teaching journalism uh, and race and reporting and how to write about racial inequality, which has really kind of been the hallmark of my work. And I'm also founding a center there called the Center for Journalism and Democracy. And that center is going to try to uh, use its funds to bolster investigative reporting and reporting, not just at Howard, but at a constellation of historically Black colleges that uh, offer journalism. Because as you know, um, our political reporting is really failing us in this moment right now. Uh, we have one political party that is increasingly showing they are disinterested in actual democracy, that is trying to pass laws that make us less democratic, uh, 
less free. And our political reporting class is really writing about this and reporting on this uh, as if this is just normal times that we're in, as if this is all just a political game and not really about people's actual lives and their rights and their freedoms. And the Black press has never had the luxury of, of pretending to objectivity or pretending that we don't have a stake in this democracy. And so I really want to uh, train up, you know, the next generation of, of Black journalists in that tradition. Well, and, and you know, to uh, piggyback what you're saying and also to go back to the incident at North Carolina, it comes down to money, right? A lot of the reporting and the news coverage that we get are really is really tailored to get ratings and to and to poke at people's emotional cords and to be in in a in a way uh, posture in a divisive way because it creates engagement, it creates that clickbait, it creates that you know that it compels people in some sort of way. That engagement is then monetized to the advertiser, right? Um, I think what happened to you at, at North Carolina, if we delve in a little bit deeper, it wasn't the, if I if I heard what you were saying to Gail correctly, it wasn't the your peers, it wasn't other journalists. They wanted you. They The school That's wanted right. you. This came down to people who were just donors, of basically, and large donors of the school, which who didn't want you there, but it came back down to the money again, correct? That's right. Yeah. So from and and I've never got gotten full transparency exactly about what happened, but based on the reporting, um, you know, conservative appointees who have been appointed by the Republican legislature, um, as well as a conservative wealthy donor who was the largest donor in the history of the journalism school, uh, Walter Hussman, he donated twenty five million, had been behind the scenes um, engaging in a campaign against my receiving tenure. And yes, uh, when you have that much money and you're donating to a school, we know that money gives power and power is is what I went up against. So that was why when I decided I wasn't going to go to the University of North Carolina, I, I decided I wanted to try to raise as much money for Howard as Walter Hudson raised for the University of North Carolina. Beautiful, beautiful. Nicole Hannah-Jones. Now, as a, as a hip-hop fan and you're of the hip-hop generation as I am also, uh, how proud are you of the artists that you see, you know, in this modern era of hip hop, like the Kendrick, like the J. Coles, like a Wale, uh, obviously still having Nas and, you know, um, how proud, even a Beyonce, right? Like how proud are you of what you see musically and, and as a music fan? I feel a great deal of, of pride and respect. And we know that Black artists have always uh, made political music, that this goes, you know, back to uh, the era of gospel and the blues, really. Um, and so to see someone like like Kendrick, and I'm I'm a huge J. Cole fan. My husband's from Fayetteville. Uh, I, I I love ratchet hip hop, but my heart is with uh, hip hop with with a message, right? Like folks who are creating music to engage um, in the political atmosphere that we're all dealing with, who are not just out here trying to make money, but are trying to help us understand the world that we're in and engaging with the world that still uh, we have to assert that Black Lives Matter. So. Um, I when I when I was thinking about this list, I mean, I had to include um, the folks who are the storytellers, um, but the folks who are also, to me, and we know it, it's it can be a risk. Um, yeah. 
Are you going to get radio play, right? Are, are, are you going to produce music that is actually financially uh well, I was going to say, are you going to be able to survive? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. To pay some bills. Um, and, and stay true to yourself and, and produce the music that is urgent in the moment. And this right. is why I, I chose Kendrick. I mean, Kendrick came out out of the box producing music where you were like, oh, shit, he's... Or shoot, I don't know if I can cuss or not. No, you can say, um, you say you know, we're good. It's the message. Okay. We're good. We're good. Like, he's, we're talking good. About, he's talking about... Real music. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't remember if I even put Tupac on here because I would have had to put yeah, like all the albums. But okay, Pac I'm a huge here. Tupac fan. Uh, I was actually in Tupac's official fan club when I was when I was in high school. <laughs> um, but that's always been the music that has spoken to me, and and it hasn't been surprising that um, when you look at someone like Tupac, that his mom was a Panther, right? Like you you can hear that in the music. And when I think about Kendrick Lamar. Um, I could have put many, many tracks on here. And you're also seeing like his own political growth through the music. But all right is that it's almost like the, the song that makes you want to um, laugh and cry at the same time, right? Because depending what's happening, you either, you're either playing that music to tell yourself like, God, this country is messed up. Like they just killed George Floyd, but, but we're going to power through it because that's what black people do. Or you're playing it to be like, man, please, like everything you tried to do to put us down, we're still here and we're going to shout out all our lives we had to fight, but we're still here. And it evokes like that whole spectrum of, of struggle and of music um, and emotion that music that music derives. And, and really, I, I will play it when I'm feeling any range of those emotions on any day. Well, it's at the top of the of the message playlist provided to us uh, by Nicole Hannah-Jones. You can get it right now. It's available on Apple Music. Now we got to play Cole. You picked his, his, one of his latest records, My Life. My Life is All I Have. Uh, my Rhymes, My Pen, My Pad. I'm sure that speaks uh, volumes to you. Um, and before we get into My Life and the pen and the pad, I, I wanted to, for the audience, um, I've had many debates about critical race theory and 1619 Project. Some people think they're the same. There's a relationship, but it is not the same. Um, and quickly from uh, the person who brought us the 1619 Project, and I'm sure I studied critical race theory, can you articulate the differences? Sure. So to start with, critical race theory is an academic framework for understanding the inequality we see in our country. And, you know, the fact that we're even talking about it speaks to how successful the, the Republican propaganda campaign has been. Uh, there are no, you know, elementary, middle school teachers who are teaching critical race theory. And really what it derived from was after the end of the civil rights movement, we still saw black people facing discrimination in every aspect of American life. We still saw uh, that uh, we hadn't ended inequality despite passing all of this civil rights legislation that was ending uh, legal discrimination in the law. And scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, like Derek Bell, were like, well, how do we understand a society that has ended legal discrimination and yet Black people still face every disadvantage? And this is how they came up with critical race theory. It was at first a way of just looking at the law and what are the, what are the structures in the law that maintain inequality even if you have actually changed the laws, um, which is not radical. It's not scary. It's just a way of, all. to me, a realistic way of, of examining and assessing our society. Um, it's, it's called logics. It's, it's logical. It's, it's it, a logical it is, way. It is, right? And 
again, when you ask any of these people who have tr created this uh, critical race theory hysteria, they can't name the text. They haven't read the text. They don't actually understand what it is. It's not, it's not frightening and it's not radical. Um, and the 1619 Project, certainly I've been influenced by critical race theorists because I, I read very widely and people who write and think deeply about race are people whom I've read. But the 1619 Project is a work of journalism that simply says, let's us examine how foundational slavery was to the United States and how that legacy of slavery uh, still operates and molds our society today. It's all been lumped in, but really that's just uh, to create these these scary boogeymen to stoke white resentment. And uh, I have to give it to uh, the right. They've been very successful uh, with merging these two and with making both of these ideas frightening, uh, calling them anti-American. But they're actually just trying to help us understand America, both of them. Well, not only that, but I honestly think ultimately they'll fail because now they've made it so top of mind that even a layman is now provoked to go learn something that they may not have ever thought of before, right? Um, and you you said elementary school and middle school uh, with regard to critical race theory. Is there a high school even? that There's no. not a public school in America that teaches critical race theory. It's not even... It's only offered in, like, upper education, and it's not even a part of any... I mean, there's there's certain curriculums that you definitely want to learn it, but it's not even that mainstream where people are taking the classes that much. Like I, I even looked no. around at some at some universities that don't even offer this as a as an option, and now it's going to be an option. Now it has to be a part of the conversation. <laughs> That's correct. I mean, the crazy thing is is uh, polling shows that most American teachers don't even feel like they know enough to teach slavery well. So there, right, and that's just a, a basic fact of history. So no, teachers are not teaching critical race theory. Most teachers uh, had never heard of critical race theory. But what, what Republicans have done is they've lumped any type of equity training, any type of mention of like black history or any discussions of race, and they're calling all of that critical race theory. And this is what makes it kind of hard to argue against is um, to have a discussion about critical race theory or to have a discussion about uh, the history of racism in this country. It's a complex conversation, but they just simplify it down to these terms. Oh, they're teaching you to hate America and it's critical race theory. And it's hard to have an argument, um, a sophisticated argument on uh, simplified terms that they use. But um, I think we have to just get smarter about not allowing uh, bad faith actors to drive the conversation and force us to have conversations about critical race theory when that's not actually being taught. Though I would say it would be a helpful framework, um, but teachers are not teaching that, no. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you so much. Does anybody just call you Nicole? Do they call you Hannah-Jones? Does anybody call you Nicole <laughs> Hannah? Like, does it all three have to go together at the same time? What do no, you No, just Nicole. Just Nicole. Nicole. Nicole, yes. I like it. And and will this party that this annual party that you have will we be opening this up to the to a larger audience? Do I need to get a concert promoter? Maybe get you a venue and say like <laughs> how you know what I mean? Like because this is a this is this is a movement. I think I think you know you are you are entering that next phase of the Nicole Hannah Jones dance party. You know what did you call it? Fried chicken and revolution. <laughs> Fried chicken are, and revolution. You know, fried chicken and revolution. I know. Right? Now I'm going to have to trademark it, copyright it, whatever, whichever is the proper term for that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I haven't had what the last party I had was February, because I also throw an annual Black History Month party. Um, 
And it was February right before the coronavirus shut down. So I haven't had a big house party in uh, a year and a half. And I was I was saying we might have to call this one the Blacksonation party because you gotta be you gotta be uh blacksinated to get <laughs> to get in the party. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, those of us who were blessed enough to have survived the pandemic um and we're living in such turbulent times, I think we we have to create that those space for joy um and fried chicken. Uh, let's close with Tupac. Keep your head up. Um, this is off the Nicole Hannah-Jones, The Message playlist, and I thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun. The Message. Don't push me. Call. I'm close to the edge. An open dialogue about the voices of today and their experiences through music that inspires them.